When God makes us go, wow. Isn't it, isn't it wonderful when something makes you go, just wow. You know, you don't, you don't have to think about it. It's just you see something, you hear something, and it just makes you go, wow. And sometimes that's a friend or a thing that happens, you know. Um, I was watching the rugby yesterday and the rather poor performance of England against Samoa. And not that it seems to have bothered the rest of you. But anyway, I, uh, uh, you know, but I was, I was, uh, it was an appalling match. And one of the things I do when some things are not going so well is I, I sit on my exercise bike and watch it on the bike. Because then even though the game's so bad, at least I feel like I'm doing something useful. So I'm on my exercise bike, pedaling away for the whole match, which is longer than I'd normally pedal. And I felt very tired at the end of that, but at least we did win and I got some exercise, 25,000 steps or something. So that was good, except this morning when I woke up and I stretched, I pulled my hamstring. <laughs> and I went, wow, but not, you know, but not, a, not a pleasant wow, you know, rather unpleasant wow. But what we're talking about today is not pulling your hamstring kind of a wow, but a, wow, isn't God doing something amazing? And having a healthy sense of God's glory, so important for us as followers of Jesus that we have that. When God makes us go, wow. I'm going to be talking about creation and about our stewardship of it and connected to the things that Penny was talking about earlier and what God made creation for and what's our role within it, scripturally speaking. Because as you may be aware, I'm sure the state of our creation around us is, uh, well, it's looking pretty rough, isn't it, right? Uh, you think about things like oil spills or the, uh, the amount of landfill and how it's spreading and how it's hidden from us, except that it's still there, about the plastics and other bodies in the ocean that are affecting the fish even that we eat, um, the pollution of various kinds of chemicals that are entering our atmosphere and causing major health problems as well as things like the warming of the atmosphere and the oceans and all the problems that go along with that. And we see all this. And sometimes people say, well, that doesn't really matter. <laughs> because, I don't know if you've heard this, but this is all going to come to an end in, in eventually, right? And Jesus is going to come back and it's all going to burn. So this stuff doesn't matter. And we need to ask ourselves whether God actually does care about the world around us, about his creation. We might reflect then on, well, as well as the, oh yes, that's the other stat I forgot to give you there, the, the rises in average global temperatures since the industrial era, 1850, on that chart until last year, it's uh, clear it's a man-made phenomenon. But then we reflect on Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. He founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. This is his, this around us, these beautiful things that we see. And the things that have been damaged are his, not ours. They're on loan to us, which we'll talk about a bit more in a moment. But fundamentally, this world belongs to God. And if we say we love God, surely we have to say that we love what he values. 
Surely he values his creation. Consider the complexity and the beauty of it. Why would he make something so complex, so beautiful, if it wasn't to bring him glory and for, and for him to value it himself? Some people say, well, it doesn't, again, it doesn't really matter that much. It's all temporary. But it's about who made it. It's a bit like saying, um, I really love Van Gogh. I think Van Gogh is amazing. I think his paintings are phenomenal. I think they're incredible. I think he's the best painter ever. If I had enough money, I would, I would have all his paintings in my house. I think he's amazing. It's a bit like saying that about God and then saying about Van Gogh, well, I love his paintings. And you go to someone's house who say they love his paintings and you see, him, see them being burned in his back garden on the bonfire. You say, well, you say you love Van Gogh, but you're burning his paintings. Well, I know, but you know, nothing lasts forever. You would see the contradiction between the person that says they love Van Gogh and the fact they burn his paintings. We say we love God. We burn up his creation. That doesn't seem to fit, does it? If we love God, we love what he loves and values. So then we have to ask ourselves the question, well, is it our problem? I mean, what difference can you and I make? Is it our responsibility? Do we care? Interesting thing about, sorry about the small lettering, but in Genesis chapter one, we need to think about this. In verse 22, it says, God blessed them. Who's he talking about there? In the context, he's talking about the inhabitants of the oceans and the birds of the air. God blessed them specifically. He blessed them uh, and said, be fruitful. Be fruitful fish and octopi and whales and plankton and all the other funny things that live in the oceans. Be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the water in the seas. Let the birds increase on the earth. He blessed them. God blesses what he values. He doesn't bless what he doesn't value. He cares about those things. And then he blesses us. He blessed them, Adam and Eve, and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. The same blessing. The blessing for the fish is the same blessing as for you and me. Fill the earth and subdue it. And he says to Adam and Eve differently, to the animals and the birds and all that, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Rule and subdue. Now, people have taken that to mean that we can do what we like. Because God said rule it. So we can rule it and we're going to subdue it. We're going to control it and use it to our advantage. And that gives us an excuse to exploit what the world uh, contains. But we have to think about who's saying rule it. And what their idea of ruling is. How does God rule his creation? How does God rule his people? He rules them with benevolence. With justice and kindness. God does not exploit his creation. He does not exploit the people in his creation. This does not give us license to exploit. It gives us responsibility to rule and subdue what we have on this earth in the way that God would do so. We have been gifted this earth. God said, I'll give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky, all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. We have been gifted this earth. What a lucky, what lucky people we are. But we have a responsibility. So there's much we could talk about 
on this topic, but I'm going to restrict myself to a couple of things today, which I hope will be a stimulus for us to think about our views as Christians on how we treat the world around us. Firstly, let's ask ourselves, what is creation for? Here it is, but what is it actually for? What is it for? And then as a result of perhaps answering that question, what is our response? I'd say this, first of all, and we're going to be in Psalm 19 now for a while, so you might want to turn there. In Psalm 19, I would say that the creation exists to speak God to the world, to speak him to the world, to reveal him to the world. Psalm 19. Let's read from verse 1. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet... Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Let's stop there for the moment. We'll come back in a moment to that psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God. So what glories of God's creation do you value? Let me ask you. What sort of things make you think that's amazing? God has done something glorious in his creation. What sort of things do you value? The glories of God's creation. Yeah, John. Stars, planets, the heavenly bodies. Yeah. Human life itself. Life itself, which is so precious. Hmm. Animals and views of nature. Views of nature, like the big panorama sort of view and animals. Yeah, Stefan? The way that the whole ecosystem fits together, depends on each, each part working together, the complexity, and there's beauty in that, isn't there? There is. Yeah. Uh, Penn? The way that a seed becomes a plant. Tiny seed. Yeah, and Under a microscope, you get down to the cellular level, and you see that you think how some, how does something as big as a tree grow from that tiny little thing? It's incredible, isn't it? We take it for granted. It's just mind-boggling. We lose that sense of wonder. Yeah. Molecular cell biology. For your molecular cell biology lesson, speak to Leon after church. No, but I mean, absolutely. Uh, absolutely, that's something that I don't understand. But uh, amazing stuff. D- Danny, did you have one? The language of DNA. The language of DNA. Yeah, which again, another thing. I have no idea how that works. Incredible, isn't it? Uh, a couple of others. The glories at the back. Day and night. Yeah. Day and night comes around, yeah. The tides. The tides. Just watching that and seeing that and seeing its effect. And you know, when you start to think about it, there's an awful lot 
we could go into. And why are nature programs one of the most popular programs on television? Why does it? Why do, we, why do you get millions watching David Attenborough? I mean, he's a good presenter and all that, but people watch it because it's glorious. It takes you above who you are somehow. It brings you into something a bit more, I, will, I would say, spiritual. There's something, I think it's why people connect with it so much. Just because this psalmist is reminding us of what the creation is for. It creates some kind of spiritual wonder. And it does reach, doesn't it, to all cultures. Even places that have never heard of Christianity, you'll find people sort of in awe of nature. It's universal. The creation matters in large part because it tells the world that God is there, that God exists, and that God is good. God is amazing, creative, powerful, beyond imagination. It really matters. I believe that's at least in part why. In fact, valuing creation is, you could say that for us, valuing creation is participating in God's direct evangelism campaign. God does an evangelism campaign every time the sun comes up, every time a flower opens, every time a bird flies past in its beauty, every time somebody has a thought and thinks about molecular cell biology or something. There's, there's, there's a, there's God is evangelizing. Have you thought about that? And so when we value creation, we're kind of partnering with God in his outreach to the world. It's important for us. Now, as we go on in the psalm, we haven't got time to unpack all of this now, but I think what I'll just mention is this in the second half of the psalm. Oh, just I, I just wow at these things, by the way. That is a fish, believe it or not. I mean, why did God make something so weird and beautiful that hardly anybody will ever see? Isn't it just God's heart? I mean, he loves to make strange and beautiful things. And the kingfisher is glorious. I saw one this last week when I was on my prayer walk walking through Cassidy. And it just flew under the bridge and down the river. This flash of electric blue. Fantastic. Love those things. Haven't seen that fish though. Okay. So just a, a couple of other things from the psalm and then we'll move on. The psalmist then moves on from nature to something rather interesting. He talks about God's law. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm. All of them are righteous. They're more precious than gold. They're much pure gold, sweeter than honey. Honey in the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned in keeping them. There is great reward. He goes here into a, a bit of a poetic, um, looks, like a, looks like a side uh, like, a, like a left turn away from his theme of creation into talking about God's word, which is rather interesting. And he says at the end of that section, your word warns us and there's great reward. And then, um, let's skip these for the moment. Oh, I can't skip that. No, okay, let me just say this about those. Okay, so but the point, the point I think he's making here is that although God's word is like that, there are times when we don't listen to the warnings. There are times when we don't keep his commands. And maybe some of those are about the way that we treat creation. And so how have we ignored God's command to steward the planet well? We think about all the ecological disasters, not just that one, but so many, that have been caused by humankind, not by, not by a random volcano, which we have no control over, but by the sorts of things that we have participated in directly or indirectly. 
And we think about the, uh, the climb in CO2 emissions, which has just gone through the roof in the last uh, century or so. Uh, these are man-made, uh, human-made uh, effects. And they're not new. You know, we have known about this for a long time. I show you this as a mock-up, uh, a replica of an experiment done by a scientist called Eunice Foote in the 1850s. And I can't explain the experiment to you. Someone like Penny probably could, or Leon probably could. But Eunice Foote was a, a female scientist in the 1850s in a time when there were very few recognized female scientists. But she was the first, I believe, if I've read, to actually to demonstrate by an experiment that there was a connection between the release of uh, uh, greenhouse gases, CO2 specifically, and, and a rise in, uh, in air temperature. And she did a couple of experiments, which are, are shown there, which, which produced that result. She wrote a paper, which was sadly not delivered. It was not, uh, it was not delivered at the local scientific association where she was in the States. It was a British scientist a few years later that had a paper published with the same kind of results, but again, in the 1850s. In the 1850s, there were experiments demonstrating that the burning of fossil fuels raises the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere and raises air temperature. We've had warnings since the 1850s. This is not something that's been happening in the last 10 years, 20 years, that now we sometimes know about. One of the things that God wants us to do is to take notice of the evidence and then ask ourselves what we can do. How have we ruled? The psalmist says, who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless, innocent of great transgression. One of the things that we have to wrestle with, personally and as a congregation, is what are our ecological sins? Maybe you don't agree with that. There are a variety of views in this field theologically. But it's something for us to think about, and I hope by talking about it today, it will cause us to pray and discuss and, as I say, wrestle with this. Where have we been, perhaps, not discerning our errors? Where are our hidden faults? Have we got any willful sins? Is Are things in this world ruling over our decision-making? Has consumerism taken over as Lord? Has exploitation taken over, masquerading as a growth mindset, but actually being exploitation. Did we learn anything from the slowdown in the pandemic that although there were many bad things, there were some things about that time that we might have wanted to take note of in terms of valuing the creation and the world around us? The psalm finishes with this phrase. And it's good that it finishes with this phrase because it reminds us that there is a God and therefore there is still hope. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Who is he talking to? Lord, rock, redeemer. We have a Lord who is a rock, our rock and our redeemer. And therefore there is hope because we have his strength to do what we can to put things right. So secondly and finally, followers of Jesus, I would contend, disciples of Jesus, Care for creation because Jesus has a vision of a renewed creation. God has a vision for his creation, both the natural world and, and the people in it. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, and similarly in Revelation 21, we're told that there's going to be a new heaven 
and a new earth. In Revelation, a new heaven, a new earth, the first one uh, passed away. Now, just a brief point about this. There are two Greek words for new. One is neos, which means brand new, like a new thing that you haven't had before. And then kairos means renewed. And the words used here in Peter and in Revelation are the kairos word. And so what Jesus is not saying, and the Bible is not saying is that this is going to be like, this is going to disappear and not be around anymore, that the heavens and the earth are going to be completely a brand new thing. What, what actually is going to happen in some way that we can't fully understand is that this earth and this world and this and the heavens that currently exist are going to be somehow renewed, surely to be what they were always intended to be before what happened in Eden. So what we see in Genesis 1 is what we're going back to. We're not having some brand shiny new thing. We're having what is here renewed and refreshed and reclaimed and, and, and made perfect. So let's finish off by thinking about Jesus from Colossians chapter 1. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, which I'll explain the connection for that in just a moment. In Colossians chapter 1. Let, now, as we read this about Jesus, which funnily enough, Stefan used a lot of this last week in his sermon, but it was coincidental that I was going to use Spirit speaking again, I think. Let's read this passage and think about what we're reading here in connection with creation. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. But God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is in charge of creation. He is the firstborn over it. That's why he's called the firstborn. It means that he has responsibility for it. It belongs to him. He is the creator and sustainer. All things were created, uh, things in heaven and earth. Uh, they've been created through him and for him, and he is holding it together. He's sustaining what we have here. He is in charge of creation and is in charge of his church. And why are these things put together here? Because his church is the first fruits of the new creation. We are his new people, the renewed people. We live in what's called the already but the not yet. We already have the kingdom, but we don't yet have the fullness of the kingdom. We already have our salvation, but we don't yet have all of what it means because that's in the next life. That's in the, when we're with God forever. We already have, we are already a new people, but we're still being made new. We already have God's presence here, but not as fully as it will be. We, we live in the already of what God has already begun to do and is doing, but hasn't yet quite finished. You see what I mean? And so we as God's people now are called to treat this earth the way that it will ultimately be treated when all of the evil has gone from the earth, all of the destruction has gone, all the exploitation is gone, and all the pollution is gone in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the way we're meant to treat it now so that we can show the world that's, that's God. That's God and that's Jesus. 
That perfection, that beauty is God. It is Jesus. And so as the way that we treat the world is shows shows the way that we treat the created world shows the world how much we value God and how we, much we are part of his vision for this world and for the people in it. So we, we're disciples of Jesus. So we want to live now the same way we will live forever. We do our best with that. We, we fail, right? And we're, we're imperfect, but we have God's help. And together we help each other with that. And so the question, I think, for all of us is, well, what, what's my part in that? Well, it's my part in that to be part of that restoration, that reconciliation that Jesus has begun and that will affect all things. The way we treat people and God's creation is a foreshadowing vision of what is still to come. Jesus did that while he was on this earth. The way that he treated people, the way that he treated all the things around him shows us what that will ultimately be like. And we do our best to do similar since we're his family. Two reasons we care about creation. Firstly, it's God's evangelism campaign in partnership with us. And we care about creation because Jesus is renewing it and one day will bring it to its full renewal, but again, in partnership with us. Jesus is renewing all things, including you and me. And the reason we take bread and wine, at least in part, is because it reminds us that we have been already made new, but we're moving forward to the full newness of being with Jesus forever. The bread and the wine represent his broken body. A body that was shed so that we, uh, was broken and blood that was shed so that we could be reconciled to him. He's made peace through his blood shed on the cross. And that's a shalom peace, as the Jewish people would say. A peace of, har of harmony. And it's our responsibility to do the best we can to be in harmony with the creation, in harmony with each other, and through the blood of Christ to be in harmony with him. And, and, we, and rejoice in that. He is making peace through his blood shed on the cross. May we be peace bringers. Peace bringers in creation. Peace bringers to the bit of grass down the side of the church building. Peace bringers in your own place. Peace bringers in the way that you live. Peace bringers with those who are lost do not know this amazing God. Let's help other people to have that wow moment with God. Let's pray again.